0: I feel so incredibly alive when I teach and when I ride and when I'm playing the music and really feeling it and kind of in my zone and helping other people get in their zone. And it's something that I will miss when I have to give it up, but I will never decide to continue teaching, you know, if it compromises my ability to teach.
1: This is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. I'm John McGowan, and if you have someone smart, talented, or interesting that you think I should be talking to, send me an email, john at indoorcycleinstructor.com. I recently had an ICI Pro member do just that, sent me a link to an article in Cosmopolitan Magazine. Now, obviously, as a guy, I don't read Cosmo um, regularly, but the t- title of this article intrigued me, and I'm going to guess it would intrigue you as well, and I'll read it to you. What it's like to teach a spin class when you're going deaf. And blind. Got your attention? The subject of the article is an instructor in New York City. Her name is Rebecca Alexander. Not only is she an accomplished indoor cycling instructor, but she's also an author and she's written a book called Not Fade Away. I want you to meet her now, and I hope that as we close out 2014, this will inspire you as getting a chance to meet her has inspired me. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I um, am completely dumbfounded how someone with very limited sight and very limited hearing can, I mean, it's hard enough to teach an indoor cycling class when you're fully able. Can you help us understand uh, what's afflicting you?
0: I have something called Usher syndrome type three. And what that means is that uh, I am progressively losing both my vision and my hearing. So if a normally sighted person has 180 degrees of vision when they're looking straight ahead, I have just about 10 degrees uh, right in front of me. And um, my hearing uh, now is, I was a cochlear implanted in my right ear about a year and a half ago. And in my left ear, I wear a hearing aid, but I am profoundly deaf without my hearing aid. So essentially, without any of my assistive devices, I am uh, I am deaf for all intents and purposes.
1: Forgive me, you know, because when you click, I'm mean, going to have a link to this article. Here's this beautiful girl, and you look like you've got just the world, you know, by the shoulders, and then to read this it's like wow a what a horrible thing to have to go through but the attitude that expressed in the article and then you and I've chatted a little bit is just and and then also your dog olive back there <laughs> it's just incredible how did you get started in fitness
0: i started teaching actually uh in 2002 when I was in graduate school, I was doing a dual degree in uh, public health and social work, specifically in obesity and weight management and health promotion, disease prevention. And I figured, you know what, I'd like to make some money uh, while I'm in school. I took a lot of different cycling classes, and I love them, and I've always been a big fan of music and feeling motivated. And so I decided, you know what, I want to teach my own classes so that I can use my own music and motivate people in the best way I know how. So it started as sort of like a fun side job, and when I was in my prime, I was teaching you know, 15 to 20 classes a week. So I was sort of an eating, studying, spinning machine.
1: Wow, and just for the listener's sake, I'm in Minneapolis, you're in New York and Skype is our connection is just a little fuzzy, so I apologize if uh, Rebecca doesn't come through perfectly clear, but I don't want to believe me, we we went through a lot just to get to this point. So, and you're both a group fitness instructor and an indoor cycling instructor. Right. Did you start one or the other first?
0: I started cycling.
1: You did. Yes. Okay. And then, and you've been a, to a number, you've, or I should say, you've taught at a number of locations. Can you give us an idea of where you've been?
0: Oh my gosh. Where haven't I been? Um, in New York City, I started at New York Sports Club, New York Health and Racket, uh, the Sports Club LA, Reebok, Equinox, um, Zone Hampton, Cycle. <laughs> I've been, I've been everywhere. And now I am back at home at Equinox where I really taught the most classes, and I really feel like I know uh, a lot of the other instructors, and they're, it's so motivating. For instance, Rachel Boucher, who I know you know, is um, an incredibly motivating instructor and coach, and uh, it's so great to be a colleague of hers through, uh, through Equinox. There's a lot of really wonderful people there.
1: I so you know, I was out in New York here uh, one month ago and I and I so wish I had connected with you earlier cuz I would have loved to come over and take one of your classes.
0: Yeah, hopefully yeah. someday soon.
1: Some Oh, absolutely. All right, so and how many classes are you teaching at Equinox?
0: Uh so now I teach about 4 a week, 4 or 5 Mostly because, um, I've well, and <laughs> we haven't mentioned this, but I recently published a book, so I've been doing a lot of book touring, and I'm a psychotherapist in private practice uh, also, and so I'm juggling everything at the same time.
1: Wow. You, you, you do sound like you have a very busy life.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're going to get away from it. We, I, I'm i privileged to understand that you're heading to Hawaii here soon, and and uh, that would be a wonderful thing to get away from go someplace warm. Right. And uh okay, so and I want to talk about your book a little bit just because you have a a story that I, well, let's talk about it. You have overcome things that most people would have destroyed based on Uh, you know, that you're losing your sight, you're losing your hearing, and then you had a horrible accident. Explain that.
0: You know, it's interesting because before I ever really knew about the Usher syndrome, I was 18 years old and I was, uh, I just graduated from high school and a big group of friends uh, and I decided that we were going to go to, you know, a hip-hop dance club And we decided to go drinking ahead of time at, you know, some playground, school playground. And anyway, long story short, we made it into the club. But at some point while we were there, I, you know, the alcohol hit me and I could no longer hold myself up. And so we left. I was uh, brought home and my friends put me to bed. And presumably at about 4.30 or 5 in the morning, I got up to go to the bathroom. I think maybe that's what I was trying to do, but I was still so intoxicated and so, you know, out of it that instead of going for my bedroom door, I went into my bedroom window and I fell out 27 and a half feet onto our flagstone patio and I broke just about everything in my body except I didn't hit my head. So, I I literally oh my. Yeah, that was my first experience with sort of being disabled um because So
1: so your sight and your hearing hadn't Began to degrade at that point.
0: Well, they had, but um, I don't know whether it was wh- whether it was significant enough to have had an effect on that accident. Um, I think it, that had more to do with maybe the alcohol, and I'm not quite sure.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that has a tendency to do that. And large quantities so who found you who found you
0: so my mom found me she heard a very faint you know my window was open and she heard a very faint help or something like that and uh so I was very lucky and I was also very lucky that there was a neighbor who was a police officer who'd just gotten off a late night shift and so he'd heard me because I was um you know, on the patio that faced some of some of the houses on the street behind us.
1: Wow. Okay, so how long did it take for you to recuperate from that?
0: Well, so essentially I shattered my left foot. Uh, I shattered part of my left hand. I broke my right hand and I broke my, my back. So the only thing that was not broken was my right leg. And uh, I was in the hospital for about a month. I was in a wheelchair for about four months. All of the bones in my left foot were originally hip bones. I had a bone graft, and you know I'm so fortunate to be. I was told that I would never be able to walk properly again, Uh, but I had to, before I was discharged from the hospital, I had to be able to successfully get myself out of the hospital bed and into the wheelchair and out of the building using just my right leg. So that took me a little time, but that was really my first kind of real experience with what it feels like to A, be disabled, but B, understand just how incredibly fortunate we are to be able-bodied in whatever form we're able-bodied, just how fortunate we are to have those abilities.
1: Wow. I'm just sitting here shaking my head thinking, okay. And so, and then from that you recovered and then started a life of fitness.
0: I did. I mean, you know, the most important part of my recovery was physical therapy. And from there, I had to, re- you know, I had to recuperate on my own. Physical therapy wasn't going to last forever. And so part of um, my real interest and passion for fitness came in that recovery process.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. and oh, well, I have to ask, and, and you're young, you're, uh, forgive me, I'm percent, 35 you're 35. Do you have the aches and pains that you have after, um, that accident? Especially, yeah. I mean, do you have, yeah. just
0: I mean, continual... right. So, you know, the one thing I will always have pain, uh, it's something you kind of grow accustomed to. It's, ha- it's hard to imagine, but many people I think live with chronic pain, particularly people who've been in fitness for years and years. Um, but, yeah, so my left foot is – and my left foot and my back are always pretty, pretty achy. Um, but, you know, I'm able to use them.
1: When did your eyesight really start to, do, to, to be a yeah. limiting factor in your life?
0: Well, so I would say in my 20s. Um, you know, moving – I moved to New York City uh, for graduate school. I was living on the Upper West Side. I, I was at Columbia, and um, – you know, it was, I was, I lived directly across the street from a firehouse. And so I remember in the middle of the night that I would hear them leave and, you know, the siren would go on and, and that would be particularly, you know, loud. And I remember, I remember uh, feeling like it started to sound not quite as loud as it had before, but in terms of my vision, New York is the best and the worst place for somebody who's visually impaired and hearing impaired to live, but visually impaired mostly because there is such incredible public transportation here. You can take the bus, you can take the train, you can take the, you know, uh, um, taxi to get anywhere, but it's also incredibly jam-packed. There are people everywhere. It's so noisy, um, and you, you really have to have your wits about you and constantly, you know, be paying attention uh so my vision i noticed when i moved um in the city to a new area i noticed that i was having more difficulty sort of navigating um my night vision is most affected i mean that's part of sort of the irony of teaching uh cycling classes you know they're all Yeah
1: oh yeah we were i'm i'm, I'm going to get to that yeah but the uh, but so but so for the last 15 years you've been sensing or, or experiencing a loss of, of vision and hearing
0: yeah. Yeah. So my, I, I only in the last five years, well, let's be honest, in the last year or two started using my cane.
1: Wow. And yet you still soldier on. Okay. All right. So tell me your experience at the club. Um, you know, so much of what we do, uh, we have to see what's happening. Especially with loud music and whatnot, and yet you're challenged by that. Can you give us an understanding? Someone's listening to this. Maybe they're experiencing something similar. How are you um, with your with your limited and and explain exactly what you see so that people understand it's it's not it's not that you're it's not like it's fuzzy, but explain right. it.
0: So my central vision is quite strong. So if you were to take both of your hands and make little O's with them and put them over your eyes, like you are using binoculars and make those, you know, make those O's a little smaller and then just look around, look around the room, you know, walk down the street, I wouldn't recommend it. But, you know, if you were to imagine yourself walking down the street or doing your everyday life with. Uh, with those hands over your eyes, with these smaller holes to look through. That's really what my vision looks like. That's the best way I can describe it uh, in in a sort of very rudimentary way.
1: All right. So you have very little or almost no peripheral vision is what you're explaining.
0: Right. So um, the vision part of what I have is called retinitis pigmentosa. Um, A lot more people have that than Usher syndrome. Um, and retinitis pigmentosa is the opposite of macular degeneration and that's it's called tunnel vision so essentially you lose your periphery and then your central vision i'm actually very fortunate to have a very small sliver of my outermost periphery so you know every now and then i catch someone before they go into my blind spot when they're out of my field of vision um but yeah really you know you can't focus your periphery so particularly at night, I really only have those 10 degrees.
1: Okay. And in your studio, I I'm, imagine that you're keeping the lights down.
0: Yeah. I mean, I keep the lights down just like everybody else.
1: Okay. Then how are you, how are you, are you completely, are constantly scanning yes. back and forth? I, I, I got to imagine you are.
0: Well, John, this is, I mean, it's a good question because the reality is I, each of the each of the rooms that I teach in, I've memorized spatially. I know exactly how many steps it is from the podium off, you know, off the bike, off the bike on the podium down to the actual um, floor. I know how many steps it is, you know, across the front of the 85th and 3rd Equinox cycle room. Um, and I've also memorized sort of spatially the way that the bikes are set up. So it's it's sort of funny because, it, you know, when you become so accustomed to a particular space, you know, it, it just becomes sort of second nature. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't know about my condition who take my class. There are a lot of people. Because,
1: well, uh, yeah, because I look at you on Skype or I see in your picture, you look just like a beautiful young woman. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. Well, but you do.
0: <laughs> so,
1: it, it, so it's not obvious. And I and I and I read in one article that you told a story about how um, someone in your class was put off by what they perceived as your lack of attention. Yeah. Tell that story.
0: Yeah, that was what I was just going to tell you. So basically, I had a class, and you know, I'm like anybody else. I mean, some days we have good days, and we have bad days, but. This woman happened to be, uh, you know, sometimes you have the classes where people are riding alongside the same wall that you are uh, teaching from. And so she was in a very dark spot um, and, you know, against the wall next to me. I hadn't looked over and apparently she'd been trying to get my attention during class and I didn't see her. She came up to me after class and she said, I have to tell you, that's the worst spin class I've ever taken. And I can't believe that you don't care enough about your students to want to get off your bike and help them. I was trying to get your attention the whole time, but you were too self-involved to help. And for me to hear that, given my circumstances, if anybody understands what it means to need help, it was sort of gut-wrenching to know that this woman perceived me that way. Because, of course, I would never have not helped her had I seen her. I could have handled it in a couple of ways. I could have said, Oh, well, I have Usher syndrome and I'm going blind and deaf. But, you know, to be honest, this woman doesn't want to hear it. And also, I'm responsible for the room. I'm responsible for being able to scan or being able to make sure that everyone is sort of having their needs met. And it can be a difficult thing. I mean, we all know what members can be like. So I apologized to her. I said, You know, miss, I'm very sorry. I'm visually impaired. Uh, You're right. I was not scanning enough. And I'm sorry that you perceived me as being self-absorbed. I simply didn't see you. And I hope you'll consider taking my class again. And, you know, there's a real part of me that wanted to punch her in the face and be like, you're such a jerk. You're so, you know, but like.
1: Why would you judge me? Right. I understand. Don't you have any idea what I'm going through? Right. Right. right, but, But
0: she doesn't know. And you know what? Uh, It's New York City. We have a lot of um, very entitled (laughs) members and and (laughs) writers here. Um, And the reality is it was something that I had to take to mind. I mean, and, and if that's something, I'm very lucky that many of the people who take my class have known me for many years. And so they're very eager to help and to sort of, you know, point me, oh, someone to the right, you know, is trying to get your attention or whatever. I mean, and so it's really, it's really nice to have those members who have been supporting me throughout the years and know what my circumstances are.
1: How long do you think you can continue teaching? Any idea?
0: Well, before I got my cochlear implant, I thought I might have to stop because the volume uh, of the, of, with hearing aids, hearing aids distort sound. And so it's such a battle to try to figure out whether you're hearing sound louder than normal people or what setting of the hearing aid you need to be on so that you're hearing it as best as you can, or similarly to people who are fully hearing. And I noticed that I was starting to play my music, you know, maybe a little too loudly. And so I would put these little stickers uh, on the, stereo just above the volume they're little bumpy stickers so that I knew that I couldn't turn the volume higher than that but after I was cochlear implanted and you know it's a, it's a long process of relearning how to hear uh, but once I was able to do that I found that I was able to teach much better and I felt much more comfortable you know I only teach in rooms that I'm familiar with now uh, I teach a lot fewer classes than I did before And one of the things that I love the most about teaching and about sort of encouraging others to push themselves and to really work hard and to have fun is you feel so alive. I feel so incredibly alive when I teach and when I ride and when I'm playing the music and really feeling it and kind of in my zone and helping other people get in their zone. And so it's something that I will miss when I have to give it up, but I will never decide to continue teaching, you know, if it compromises my ability to teach.
1: Well, it, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, and, and I understand you are somewhat of a rock star there. Is, that's my understanding. Does it make sense to have an assistant?
0: I would love to have an assistant. That would be great. I think every cycling instructor would love to have an
1: assistant. <laughs> We'd all love <laughs> to one. To be honest, right, right.
0: I mean, to deal with, you know, I mean, how many times... Do you have to deal with people in the middle of class who are having trouble with their bike, and you're trying to count down for you know a sprint or whatever it is, and you're just kind of simultaneously doing everything? But anyway, yeah, my you know one of my best girlfriends. So sometimes she would come and take my class before I was implanted to sort of help me with the volume. And so listen, if we could pay an assistant to be there, that would be great.
1: Well, you'll have to you'll have to send me your contact information for your. Department head there. I'll put in a good word for you. How okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, tell me, uh, how do you describe your class to someone? Do you qu- quantify it as a type of format or, or how do you describe it to someone? If says, they say, you know, Rebecca, I understand you teach a class. Tell me. About
0: uh, it. I would say my class is a high energy class. I think it's really important and it really helps to be able to play music that has a beat that you can really um, work to. You know, for instance, if you're doing a climb at 55 to 65 RPM or 60 to 70, it's great to have a beat that matches that so that you can, I think that really helps you get into your zone. You know, your legs are moving to the beat and you can really sort of create, um, you know, your your cadence accordingly and you can get your, sort of feel your whole body into it because you're really, everything sort of in sync. The music, your, you know, your your pedal strokes and your bike. And I love to play a lot of songs that are, you know, that that people love over. I mean, over the years, I play a lot of the, uh, I don't know, remixes, a lot of mashups,
1: of familiar songs. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I mean, I love so the music part. That that's a big part of my class. But um, I also do because I do so much high intensity training. I do a lot of interval work. Um, I do well. Often my classes have a lot of climbs. Um, it just depends on sort of what demographic I'm teaching. You know, it depends on the club, depends on if I'm teaching at a club that has hard workers and they're, you know, uh, there are more outdoor cyclists in the class, or if I'm teaching a class that's more, uh, about women who want to sort of, you know, bounce on the bike.
1: To that question, you know, you, 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 you spent some time at SoulCycle, um, uh, is, is your class more toward that end or is it more toward Rachel's end?
0: It used to be more towards that end, and now I would say it's more towards Rachel's end because I've done so much training with Schwinn that I really try to teach now. Sorry, my, my dog is really enjoying this.
1: No, no, that's fine. We, it, it, it just adds to the charm of the whole thing. You've laid this all out in a, in a book, and I have to admit I haven't read all of it, but I've had a chance to read some of the excerpts in it, and it's, it seems very well written, but it really tells your story. What was your motivation to write the book? And I should add that the, the title of which is Not Fade Away.
0: I was approached about writing a book uh, about five years ago, and I kind of felt like, nah, I don't know what I have to say. I don't know if anybody wants to hear uh, what I have to share. And then I started this uh, Usher 3 initiative, which is a you know nonprofit organization that raises money specifically uh, for my condition, because it is an orphan disease. Um, and you know it's sort of like a l s that ice bucket challenge was brilliant i mean it's all that's also an orphan disease. It was such a fun experience for people to get involved in and I would love I wish you know usher Three initiative had thought of that
1: well, what do you mean by orphan disease?
0: Orphan disease means that there are very few people affected by the, the disease in, uh, in our country, but in, in the world, usually. And that means that when you look at research and funding, it's difficult to raise money for orphan diseases because, you know, when we look at things like breast cancer or we look at, uh, you know, leukemia or different um, conditions that affect a much larger population, you know HIV and AIDS. This is where you see a lot of funding and research, and um, the ability to raise money to fund the research. Um, and so, when you're an orphan disease, you have fewer people who are, you know, giving money because there are much fewer people that are affected by it, and yet. We're 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 sort of at a disadvantage in that way and we and we need to raise funds and we need to find a way to get people involved and and so that's why I bring up the ice bucket challenge because ALS is also an orphan disease and it was such a great way to incorporate people and you know, it was during the summer. It was just such a such an uplifting uh, way of raising money and awareness.
1: I'm going to have all this information, and before I forget to ask yeah. you, Rebecca, could you please send me a picture of you and your dog together so everybody can see who they're hearing in the background?
0: <laughs> I, I definitely will. <laughs>
1: Awesome. So you sat down and wrote the book. Uh, was there an objective to it when you? Yeah. Wrote it? So
0: I basically decided that I wanted to write this book because I thought it was most important. First of all, to give a voice to usher syndrome. I think oftentimes when we think of disability, when we think about people with disabilities. We have sort of preconceived ideas of what having a disability looks like or what people with disabilities look like. Maybe that they're sort of uncoordinated or that they're unkempt or any number of, um, you know, of different things. So I wanted to be able to say, hey, there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of us out there that are dealing with all different types of conditions uh, and circumstances, and we 're doing the best we can and 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 we 're thriving, um, but more importantly, I wanted people to know that they're not alone and that was in my own process it's been so important to have the support that i've had along the way and so you know many people in response to the book have have really been appreciative of having a voice either for Escher syndrome or I write about so many different things and they're about mental health. And so people were very grateful to feel like they could they could connect, that they could relate to it.
1: Well, and you're you're applying your psychotherapy training in, in the book, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. I talk about this, well, the psychotherapy stuff. I actually talk about more personal issues with mental illness as it's affected, you know, people in my family.
1: Wow. And you keep soldiering on. I'm in awe of you because the, what you've dealt with in your short life has... Uh, you know, would cripple a lot of people and yet you're just a sparkling shining light. So, well, congratulations. I don't know what else to say.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I think the important thing is is that part of my ability to be as sort of uh, upbeat as I am is that when I allow myself to get sad, you know, I allow myself to mourn the loss of, you know, my vision or my hearing and when I experience changes And if I didn't allow myself to do those things, I think it would be much harder for me to really feel, you know, happy and satisfied with my life. So I definitely allow myself to cry when I need to and really feel it.
1: Rebecca, if someone has uh, uh, an interest in contacting you or learning more about you, what's the best place for them to find you?
0: I have a website that's www.rebalexander.com, R e b a l e x a n d e r.com and you can contact me through that site easily
1: awesome all right well good luck to you on your book sales and your career uh, as an indoor cycling instructor and uh, i wish you the best for uh, the holiday season
0: thank you you too thanks so much for taking the time